Hi, I'm Laura. Hi, I'm Zina. And welcome to Think Law, a podcast series brought to you by four LSE students, where we interview people from different legal backgrounds to guide aspiring law students. We are delighted to be joined by Baroness Helena Kennedy for our second episode. Baroness Kennedy is one of England's leading barristers in the field of human rights, civil liberties, and constitutional issues. She's a member of the House of Lords, the Chair of Justice, the Principal of a College at Oxford, and serves as Counsel to the Crown. She has published over four books, and the list continues. Baroness Kennedy, it is an absolute honor to have you today joining us on our podcast, Think Law. We are currently living in unprecedented times, and we want to take this incredible opportunity to hear your thoughts on pressing contemporary issues faced by women from the perspective of a leading human rights barrister and feminist in the UK. Particularly, we want to address the global response to the protection of women's rights, and we want to challenge international law's legitimacy in the context of the Iranian protests and the Ukraine war. So, um, as many of you may know, the death of Masa Amini that happened almost a month ago, who had been arrested for wearing an improper hijab in violation of Iran's mandatory hijab law, has sparked an ongoing series of protests against the Iranian government on local and global scale. What do the ongoing protests indicate to you, both for Iran and for women's rights more broadly? The, the protests are not new. Um, the women, the women in Iran, have been quite extraordinary in their c courage, um, uh, confronting, um, you know, issues of of oppression, with particularly with regard to themselves, their own uh, uh, um, position um, in society, but but also concerned about what's happening to those who are poorer, those who belong to minorities, and so on. I mean, I've known a number of extraordinary uh, women, uh, Iranian women, who've who've been doing that. I knew Shirin Abadi, and you're probably, um, it's before your time, but Shirin Abadi was a great lawyer in um, Iran, and she uh, was very courageous. She, in fact, was a judge at the time of the revolution, and she was excited at the revolution. She thought it was going to involve democracy, and then she found that it involved theocracy. And she was within within days of, uh, of the revolution, uh, she was very depressed because Um, uh, she was told that she could no longer sit as a judge. She would have to be a clerk of the court. And, uh, and she was asked to move her position in the, in the courtroom, not, no longer to be sitting as a judge because she couldn't sit in judgment on men. And um, so for a while, she was a clerk of the court. And then she was um, uh, decided to, to pull out of the court system because she was watching so many travesties of justice. And she then um, set up a law firm, um, which was very much um, acting for women, uh, um, for uh, women with regard to their rights within marriage, um, women and, uh, and children's rights. And she was really in incredibly courageous. She was very um, well-versed in Sharia law, and she used it to point out uh, how it was being interpreted um, from a male perspective, that it was never what was intended in the original Quran. And so she um, was therefore seen as almost as an apostate because she was criticizing um, the interpretation that was being put on the law by, by the courts. And, uh, and so she was at different times imprisoned in Evian prison. Uh, she had the most um, um, incredible uh, um, persecution at the hands of the state, basically. And it's complicated because Iran is, as you know, um, it, it has the theocracy um, uh, 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 
regime at one at one part, and then a sort of pretense that there being power, um, which is the elected power. But actually, um, you know, the 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 uh, the guard and the morality police and all of that are all within the the purview of the of um, the ayatollahs um, and the chief ayatollahs um, uh, control. And so um, she um, was given the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, in recognition of her incredible courage in trying to advocate for the for women, and at that time too, she was acting for women who were saying that the morality police were invading their lives and accusing them of immorality simply because their scarf didn't cover their heads enough, um, or, you know, and so on. And then, um, uh, I mean, I I could tell you the whole story of Shirin Abadi because we had hoped that when she got the Nobel Prize that that would provide a sort of protection and would show that the world had been watching her. Um, but in the end, um, she was driven out of Iran. She had to um, uh, end up uh, um, as a refugee. Um, and now I've been campaigning over the last um, number of years for a, another wonderful woman lawyer, Nazreen Sotoudeh. And again, she's a lawyer who's been acting for women and acting on women's rights, the ways in which women have often have their children removed from them on um, on on sort of um, claims that they're not appropriate mothers, that they are um, not uh, the right kind of woman who should be bringing up their sons, that, um, uh, you know, that their husbands um, are entitled to divorce them for m- minimal reasons and so forth. And she's been acting for women and acting for women who have at times demonstrated by taking their scars off. And so she, um, she too, she's still in jail and her husband campaigns constantly on her behalf and uh, and it's heartbreaking so um i know of what's happening to to women in in iran and i think this is a particular moment where what we have to watch is will there be enough support as as young women are being killed and killed in serious numbers schoolgirls that their parents who might um, um normally not in any way uh, challenge the state may be reviewing their position and that some of them will be um, in um, important parts of the economy. For example, the oil industry. If the oil industry goes on strike, if the oil industry goes out um, onto the streets in support of of what the women are, are, are advocating, and many men are on the streets alongside women saying, this isn't the society we want to live in. And uh, uh, and so, I mean, it it, it, is, it is a travesty. But protest and when you're asking about you know um, legal issues of our times if we look around the world I mean first of all there are sort of tiers of of, and forms of government that um, we are familiar with where you have totalitarian regimes you know where they where they they don't pretend to uh, um, uh, you know have uh, uh, fair trials or to allow protest and I consider um, Iran now to be one of those. It's a totalitarian regime. It, it may pretend to be a democracy and have elections, but the truth is that it doesn't exist as a democracy. It doesn't have an independent rule of law. It doesn't have an independent media. They turn off the media when they when they feel that it is um, operating as a, a way of networking for those who are protesting uh, the power of the government. So, uh, um, and protest in so many countries now, is is being uh, curtailed. Once you see um, places that call themselves democracies, pretend that they are elected by the people and that they represent the people, um, um, once you start seeing them crushing protest, 
you know that there's something wrong. Now, um, one of the things that we're seeing around the world, and any of us who are lawyers working in the international sphere, but any of us working as a lawyer anywhere, in my view, to function, to function as a as a, an effective lawyer, um, as a human rights lawyer as I am, you really have to know what's happening in the world. You have to really keep yourself incredibly well informed. You have to be reading what's um, in um, a whole range of newspapers. You have to be listening to the BBC's World Service and other uh, news programmes to know what's going on. And usually national um, uh, uh, media are not great at covering what's happening in other parts of the world. And it's important that we know what's going on and we know uh, the, the risks that people are running in different parts of the world so that we can be advocates on their behalf. Did you face any struggles when you entered this career path, specifically being one of the first female barristers? One of the things that I've enjoyed about my life in the law is that, you know, I was a criminal lawyer practicing in the British uh, courts. Um, I became a barrister when I was in my 20s, my early 20s, and I've had the most fulfilling career in the law. I started at a time when there were only, you know, 6% of, of, of barristers were, practitioner barristers were, were women. And um, so it was very few of us. And it was um, a pretty cold climate um in that uh and in that you know if you if you really did um uh, call out some of the things that were happening you were considered to be rocking the boat um well i was a caller outer i'm afraid i in the in the 70s i wrote um i contributed to a book called the bar on trial and uh and criticized what was happening in the ways in which my chapter was on the, the treatment of women in, in the law and women in the, at the bar and uh and i continued to um, participate in public debate, to write about this throughout the 80s. And then, as, as you might know, I, I pub I've published a number of books about the ways in which um, the law has been made, made by men. And as a result of its failure to include the experience of women, the reality of women's lives, the perspective of women, um, uh, it so often has failed women. And that analysis, while true in Britain, is true everywhere in the world. You know, it's there's you know there's no way you can point to where you can say that the law is going great, going great guns for women. You know, I mean, you may be able to look at places like some of the Nordic countries, um, but even there, um, uh, you know, I go and I meet with women parliamentarians, and I uh, and I meet with uh, with women active lawyers, and um, things are not perfect there either. They still have problems around domestic violence, around sexual violence, around around that whole business of of patriarchy, of, of, of the, the, the ways in which power structures have, uh, have been based upon the primacy of the male. And, uh, and women have had to kind of keep struggling against that. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it, we're, we're, we're only part way on that journey. And in many parts of the world, our sisters are much further back in, in those struggles. And it's why they need our support. So um, I, I do think that um, Iran is, a, is, is at a juncture where we're going to witness the pain and the pain of watching young women um, um, losing their lives, being courageous in the most amazing ways, being tortured. And, and let me tell you, in police stations in Iran, they will be being tortured. Uh, and that, I think that is what led to the death of Masa. We, we know that she, her body um, had signs of, of injury. Um, so um, the, it's the painful business 
of challenging systems like patriarchy. Um, and uh, and I'm afraid we haven't got there yet. And that business of male entitlement, that somehow this is how it, how it was and this is how, even in places where we've managed to make gains, there's still a resi- residual thinking that, um, that the people who should be running things are, are men. We would like to shift this discussion on the conflict in Ukraine with regards to women's rights and rethinking international law. Knowing that Russia's invasion has lasted more than seven months and is still ongoing, how do you think international law has failed women's rights? I'm on, I'm on a task force on the Ukraine task force that's looking at the war crimes. And um, uh, um, it, um, I'm working on that with Amal Clooney, with uh, Lord Newberger, who was the president of our Supreme Court, with a number of wonderful uh, QCs, Tim Osbotty, um, Richard Hermer, um, a great academic, um, um, Pippa um, Webb. So there's a, a really um, uh, important pieces of work are being done. But the thing that, that I feel very strongly about and, and work on inside the Institute of Human Rights that I now run is the way in which women, um, where, where there's conflict, that women experience um, hostilities and war in particularly horrible ways, because there is no doubt there's evidence coming through of women experiencing um, uh, sexual violations, sexual transgressions, rape, and so forth, as well as witnessing their their sons and their husbands being slaughtered and, and shot. You know, they're witnessing terrible, terrible events, but they're also suffering in the way that only, you know, that women particularly suffer in conflict. And um, And we, you know, we we have to be vigilant to make sure that women's women's accounts in all of this are not lost. And so, when we're taking the toll of war crimes, we have to make sure um, that the war crimes committed, particularly against women, I mean especially against women, um, that they're not neglected because so often the stories are not told. And um, and so, uh, I, I I do. I do feel anxious about, about all of that. You had previously mentioned in an interview with Sky News that rape is used as a weapon of war. Mm. So I wanted to pick uh, your brains a bit, if you can elaborate on this a bit more and tell us how women are specifically affected in ways which we might not really realize. One of the things that happens is that there's a sort of general, there are myths around around women in war in the same way that there are myths concerning women in every aspect of our legal systems and in our, in our, um, you know, the conduct of our societies, um, there's a sort of notion that somehow, well, men are away from their wives and their girlfriends and so on, and you know, men have to have sex, and so they, they, you know, they take it where they can find it, sort of thing. And of course, and then they always add this, and of course, there are women who, in those circumstances where war brings poverty, war brings privations and a woman may um in a time of war want to sell their own sexuality in order to um you know get money get um benefits from uh soldiers of the opposing army you know and so there, there are women who, who do that kind of thing i mean you this is what the sort of constant thing that you're told that um that women the women sell themselves um, um, in times of great extremists in, for nations, um, but it's, but this because this business that men somehow have to have sex, and that therefore you know it's sort of like some uh, fact of life that we have to put up with that somehow um, uh, in times of war it's not going to be surprising and it's you know 
Um, it's like, you know, they, they just have this, de- this urgency. Um, and what we know is that that's, that's all nonsense. It's partly about the fact that senior officers, you know, there's a culture created often inside armies and inside all male, male forces, um, which is permissive, which allows this to happen, where the senior um, people in armies, you know, the generals, the colonels, the senior officers, allow these uh, crimes to be permitted, uh, and they uh, and they don't um, expect accountability. They don't arrest their own men who, who commit these crimes, which is of course what should be happening in armies. And so um, it, we have to keep calling out uh, the ways in which our armies conduct themselves. And so in giving advice to Ukraine. We have to be saying, yes, of course, you're going to want to punish um, uh, Russian soldiers who might rape uh, Ukrainian women. But you also have to be prepared to, um, to, to, you know, prosecute your own soldiers who might in any way do that in places like in Donbass, where there are people who are loyal to the Russians. Um, you know, it's very important that, that, that crimes are not committed against people as a form of punishment because they've placed their loyalty with the enemy. And so um, th- 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 those, are, those are serious issues in times of war. And, and, it, and it's only, I remember this, 21 years ago, um, I think it's 22 years ago now, that we had the, the terrible events of Rwanda. And there are women, uh, you know, who are, still, who are still suffering the consequences of all of that. And there has never been any reckoning for them. And in most of these places of conflict, the Rohingya women, uh, who have been raped um, uh, by the military in Myanmar? You know, you know, will there be justice for them? And uh, and I suspect that uh, that it won't be justice in the way that we we normally think of justice. That um, the men who have done these things might not be put on trial, but those who were responsible for those men uh, should ha- should uh, bear some accountability. And uh, I'm I'm afraid that violating of women is one of the ways of punishing a people. On this note, we can clearly see that international law has been violated many times. Could you elaborate on the weaknesses of the protection of human rights by using other examples? I've been doing work in China, on China, and um, the, 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 the whole persecution of the Uyghur people, who are a minority Muslim people in Xinjiang province in a, in a a part of China where um, the people um, um, are of Muslim background and that's their culture and faith and it's quite different from the majority Han population of China. And uh, and minorities inside all of our worlds um, can suffer, um, uh, you know, the sort of uh, 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 scapegoating that happens in societies. Um, But uh, what's being done to the Uyghur people is terrible and what's been done to the women um, is particular to the sex and gender of those women that that the ways in which those women are um, are being forced to into sterilization uh, the ways in which they experience rape the ways in which they um, have their their children taken from them and sent off to to uh, you know sort of internment camps of places where they will be schooled to turn into what the state thinks are proper Chinese citizens 
um, so that they won't have display their um, own culture or their own religion in any way. And it's to forget that and to replace it with something else. It's a sort of deracinating of a population. So, um, that their fathers and mothers are often being imprisoned and put into um, concentration camps. And the women experience rape in those camps. So all I can say to you is that the way in which women suffer can be different. And one of the reasons for targeting women is because of the way it demoralizes a society. Because women as the sort of the bearers of the next generation, um, they're somehow to, to um, transgress and to somehow uh, violate those, the women who, who are precious in that way um, because they are, they are the bearers of, of babies. Um, and then I saw it with the Yazidi. I, I've been doing work with the Yazidi women you know, who were who were brutally treated by ISIL um, in northern Iraq. And I've been out to the refugee camps and we're trying to put cases together in relation to the experience of the Yazidi. And that was a genocide. But of course, it was a genocide that was committed by non-state actors. And the legis you know, the, the international law that was created around um, uh, genocide, um, imagine states doing it, you know, uh, you know, they imagined um, that um, it would be done by one state to the people of another state, trying to wipe them out. You know, Armenia, um, uh, the, uh, the the whole business of going after the Jews in in, in Nazi Germany, and so we, one one imagined in, in making the law that it would be a state that would be doing it. But ISIL isn't a real state. It was it was a sort of you know cultish uh, uh, crowd of um, uh, of extremists. And uh, and they um, but they were they were decimating the Yazidi people and enslaving the women and impregnating them and of course um, the the Yazidi elders were have been very unhappy about accepting the children of the people who've done these terrible crimes to them and and yet you know I was there meeting with young women girls basically who'd given birth to babies after being raped and raped and raped and enslaved and sold on and, and experiencing the most horrifying uh, um, crimes and, um, and gave birth to babies. And then they wanted to go home to their mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, but their babies couldn't go with them because their families wouldn't accept them. Not all of the families, but most of them. And so the pain of that stays forever so um so terrible crimes happen internationally in relation to women but i mean um look terrible crimes are happening uh, uh, grievous crimes at the moment we've seen we're seeing the rise of authoritarianism and there are now more authoritarian nations in the world than democracies we know that um authoritarianism populist nationalism is is on the rise and uh, and with that always comes an attack on the rule of law, an attack on independent media, because independent media is calling out corruption and abuse and human rights travesties. And so, you know, so it's, uh, we're living through a hard time, but I have every confidence that you guys, you one, you, you uh, um, are going to, you're going to make the difference. You'll, you'll, you'll pull it back. I just hope I live long enough to see it.
Yes, I mean, for sure, this makes us think about whether international law has failed us in a way because of this rise in authoritarianism. So we were also always thinking, how can the International Court of Justice improve compliance with international law? And although these can be non-state actors or authoritarian governments, how can we allow them to comply more with international law? Listen, there has to be political will. You know, the nature of the nature of law is that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't exist on its own. I mean, you know, it can't, you know, courts can't tell, you know, can't sort of, you know, force things down the throat of a government that is authoritarian. You know, we've got a lot of challenges. And I'm afraid that just having international courts is not isn't isn't going to work unless you've got people who believe that it's important to have external eyes looking at your legal systems. Do you think social media has improved the visibility of violation of women and human rights around the world, which can therefore lead to better accountability? Listen, I, I, um, I like many others, when social media arrived, I, I thought it was going to be a way of enhancing democracy. I thought that it would provide people with information, there would be social networks, it would help people to organize. Um, look at the Me Too movement. Women were able to step forward and talk about the ways in which they had experienced abuse at the hands of men and, uh, and how the, the structures of law had not delivered justice for them. When they had gone to their employers to say there's people, somebody harassing me in the workplace, nothing would be done. And, and people were not, women were not believed. You know, women and children have not been believed historically, that they have less credibility and their testimony uh, is, has less value. And so um, I thought social media was going to be a great enhancer of and empowerer of people. Now, in some places, it is managing still to be used in positive ways. But, the, but they close them down as soon as they are having an impact. And you've seen that in Iran. And so while it has operated at some level successfully, um, in other places it hasn't. It's been toxic. So I'm afraid that I've lost my enthusiasm for the social for social media. I think it actually is a poison in our midst. And um, and I don't use it myself. I'm not. I, I will not do it um, because I want to be able to be feel free to say the things that I say. And, um, and I don't want to be inhibited or to feel um, undermined. And even strong women can be undermined by this stuff. And we see it happening to our women parliamentarians and so forth. So, I mean, is this a good time for women? Women have been making incredible gains and you will continue to do that. Um, uh, young women are, are fantastic and many more women coming into the law. We have to support each other and be kind to each other through it. And we also have to... Um, uh, you know, pass on the baton. A new generation, uh, like all of you, will, will I'm sure, um, um, make the difference as you go forward. Um, that's how we make advances in society. But it does involve, um, you know, having to, be, having to be courageous, even as a lawyer. On a final note, on top of your career as a barrister, you have strongly shifted the social reforms by actively advocating for women's rights, through Parliament, the Queen's Council, your books and broadcasting. What would you advise your audience that are aspiring lawyers on how they can make an impact on social reforms in their early stages of their career? Well, the thing, the thing that we have to do is, is um, 
it's describe our experience and to have our eyes open to how it's being experienced by other people. Um, you know, when I, I didn't, I didn't come from a family where the, where my, my parents, my mother wasn't, my yeah. father didn't abuse my mother. Um, I, I was lucky that I came from a well-grounded, kind, loving family. Um, but when I went into the law, um, I was somebody who hadn't come from a privileged background and I went there because I wanted to make a difference to people who were, you know, poor and disadvantaged and who were frightened of law. And, uh, and then I started noticing the ways in which women were experiencing law that was different. You know, if they could say that they were good wives and good mothers and so forth, but if they were in any way an inappropriate woman, you know, if their sexuality was different, if they were a gay woman, if they were, I mean, a trans woman, if they were, because I did, you know, I, over the years, I represented so many women who were, who were themselves um, suffering because they were, um, they were not part of the main uh, uh, thrust in society and in little power themselves. So we've got to be prepared to put our voice on the side of those who have little voice. And, and I've always felt that's what we can do from the small to the large, from the war crime to the thing that's happening on the bus. We've got to keep doing it. That's how we'll make change. Thank you so much, Baroness, for joining us and sharing such interesting insights with us. It was truly an honor to have you with us today and really thank you for being the voice of justice and shifting the foundations of the law for our society. And I can say for myself and all of the founders that were very inspired by your work and And thank you. Listen, you, you, you're, you're all you're all going to take up the baton and you're all going to really um, be doing great things. I have absolutely no doubt. And I say that to anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast. We can all make a difference and in different ways, small and large. But but we have to be prepared to um, stand up for compassion, humanity, you know, seeing seeing the humanness that, that we all share. Anyway, there we are. Law is, a, law is a good place to go. It gives us it gives us some tools with which we can make change. Thank you so much. That Thank you. Bye bye.